Officer down! I repeat, Officer down! Welcome back to 1033. This is your host, Nathan Kapler. Thank you for tuning in for another episode here. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about specifically trauma. The actual event, what does trauma look like from a police officer's perspective? But before we go into trauma right now, I touched on in the last week's episode the fact that when you first start out policing, you're going to end up going to a bunch of calls in the beginning that are fairly routine. But because of the environment that you're now in as a police officer, you're actually going to start to get these little adrenaline dumps as you go to calls because you're going to be thinking and using your training and analyzing situations and figuring out whether people are there to harm you or not. So for many of us, as we begin our journey into policing, The first few months, we are completely exhausted. Mentally, we're drained because we're having to think about our interactions with people in such a different way now. Physically, we're going to be drained as well. We're now carrying 40 to 50 pounds of police gear, a bulletproof vest, a gun belt with a gun, possibly a taser, and a bunch of use of force tools that are all strapped on us. It's heavy gear. It's not light. So not only are you carrying around all of this extra gear while you navigate the world of policing, but as you go out, the body gets these little adrenaline dumps throughout the day repeatedly over and over and over. And by the end of your shift, I guarantee you, for the first few months, you are going to be completely demolished and you will have no energy left in you whatsoever. Now, trauma itself is an accumulation of a bunch of different things happening all at the same time. It's usually a mixture of a perceived interaction that you're having in the world where you've now triggered your fight or flight response. The body responds, fearing possibly for your own safety, and you enter into that adrenaline dump phase where the body dumps as much adrenaline into it as possible depending on the level of threat so that you can react accordingly to stay alive. Many of us police officers or first responders have been involved in many events where the trauma is so significant that we've never forgotten the event or the feeling that's attached to it. Statistically speaking, most individuals throughout the course of their lifetime might experience one to four traumatic events. A police officer over the course of his career could experience anywhere from 400 to 800 traumatic events. For many of us, those traumatic events can be viewed as maybe one. Maybe it's only one that you see. That breaks you. Or maybe your PTSD comes from the accumulation of hundreds of different traumatic events. Each person is so unique in how PTSD comes or becomes a part of them in their life. Now, trauma itself is something that is widely misunderstood. I think a lot of people, when they think about trauma, they think that trauma actually exists in the mind. The memory is stored in the mind. So when they're having a hard time in life with the trauma that has been endured by them, they think that everything that's wrong with them is in their head. And this is actually completely false. 
Research now shows that trauma is actually stored within the body. And I'll give you a cool little story here to really kind of explain this so it makes sense. There's a book called Waking the Tiger, Healing Trauma by Peter Levine. And it's the first quarter of this book that for me was the most influential. See, I first read this book when I went to rehab in 2019. Because when I walked into rehab, I walked in and I said, I have had so much stuff happen to me over the course of my policing career. I need to deal with all this stuff that's in my head, all of the trauma. And again, my counselor sat me down and said, Nate, you're wrong. It's not in your head. The memories are yes. But the trauma itself is stored in your body. I'm sure he could see that I was completely dumbfounded by his comment. It did not make sense to me whatsoever. So all he did was he reached behind him and grabbed this book, Waking the Tiger, passed it over to me and said, read this. It'll all make sense. In this book, there is a situation that unfolds in the very first beginning phase of the book that perfectly describes why and where trauma sits within us. Now, I'm going to recall from memory the actual story between the tiger and the gazelle because it actually perfectly explains where I'm going with this. In the wild, the tiger obviously has to eat. It's a predatory animal. So it seeks out animals as prey. Now, the gazelle, i.e. the prey, if there becomes a situation where that certain gazelle now picks up and detects that there is a threat, i.e. the tiger lurking, coming after him, what do you think happens? Fight or flight response kicks in, in the gazelle. And as the adrenaline gets dumped into the gazelle, the body starts to become more alert and hypervigilant and tune in to where is the threat. Now, if the chase happens and the tiger is now chasing the gazelle, the gazelle is faced with a choice, either fight or flight. So in that natural setting, gazelles will flight. They will run. That is their natural go-to. They will try to escape the threat. That is how they are designed. So that is definitely a predetermined response for that animal. And as the gazelle runs from the tiger, depending on how close that tiger actually gets to the gazelle, those adrenal glands may actually dump more and more adrenaline into the body to get it supercharged so it can get away. This is all part of survival. If and when that gazelle does get away, let's say they actually break apart now and the gazelle feels safe enough that it can go and find a place to rest, a place to hide. It will go to that spot and once it feels it is safe, it will stop and it will shake violently for as long as it needs to get the adrenaline out. We as humans, when we go through a traumatic event, our fight or flight response kicks in. But what is critically important about that event is not what's happening during our fight or flight response in the adrenal glands kicking in. It's how we handle ourselves after the event, when we now are safe. And what are we doing to process what has just happened to us? 
Now, for many of us, we actually don't or are not aware of the fact that we have to do something with that adrenaline that has been dumped into our body and that fight or flight response that has just kicked in and all of this stuff has just happened. A lot of us at times as police officers or first responders will go to a call, we'll experience this, and as soon as we're done, we're off to the next call. It's a form of suppression. We're actually not dealing with our normal body reaction to trauma. So unlike the gazelle who is hardwired to deal with these chemicals now that are in the body and get them out, instead of us pausing and dealing with this and talking and processing everything that's just happened, we oftentimes just move on in our day. And you can start to see this make a little bit more sense about when I talk about trauma and where it sits in the body. These layers of adrenaline are almost like rock as they get layered over each other with each experience. And each experience that happens that's not dealt with almost gets buried and it gets harder to get at. And that's exactly what happened to me with my experiences. I was either one, not educated enough in how to deal with this properly, or two, did not have enough time as a Mountie to pause in between calls to properly process what I had just went through. Now, are there things that an employer can do in that situation to help their employees? Absolutely. Get that person immediately after they've done or been experienced to an event like that to take a break, to stop, to talk, sit down and connect with them. Hold a critical incident debrief. I think over the 14 years of me policing with the RCMP, I didn't have one. And I'm not blaming them, but I'm just painting the picture of what that can look like. They need to happen frequently in our line of work. I'm going to jump back now into my Whistler story and continue on with it and move forward. We now understand trauma a little bit more and where it sits in the body and why it happens and and how it's all married up with adrenaline. I haven't really talked a lot about cortisol, but cortisol is very much a part of that whole process as well. It's usually the after impact where cortisol will get dumped into the body to try and deal with the adrenaline. But cortisol can be a very toxic chemical as well. So back to my story I go. Now, as a Mountie, it was about two months into my service. It was getting close to fall. I can remember the night was very cool at night. And if you ever get to Whistler in the fall, you can feel the cold air rushing down the mountains in the middle of the night. It's cold, but it's like some of the most refreshing air you can ever breathe. It's so clean. I really actually kind of miss it. But on this specific night, we received a call. And you could tell in the dispatcher's voice that this one was going to be a tough call. A call came over our radio. I believe I was in the general duty pit in the office doing some paperwork at that moment or just collecting whatever it was I needed to collect. But she had relayed over the radio that members were needed to go to Highway 99 just outside of the village as a taxi cab had just struck a pedestrian. We didn't know what we'd be walking into that night, but I had enough common sense to at least in that moment pause and reflect and think to myself, this isn't going to be good. 
Highway 99 is a part of the highway in Whistler, and the speeds can get up to, I think it was about 60 or 70, maybe even 80 kilometers an hour in some sections. So I knew the vehicle most likely was traveling at a very high rate of speed. And also due to the fact that it was nighttime, visibility would have been way down. Most nights too in Whistler, there was a lot of fog that would always settle in in the village and surrounding area. So it was actually very difficult to see most nights. And we didn't say a word on the way there. I think myself and another partner had went. We had both jumped into separate cars, hit our lights and sirens, and peeled out of the parking lot as quickly as we could. Now, the location of the call actually wasn't that far away from the detachment. So luckily enough, we were there in probably under 45 seconds. As I pulled up behind the taxi cab, I killed my sirens, so the sound ended, but I left my lights on, and I parked in such a way to try and keep that cab safe. I could see the driver was outside, and he did not look good. He was on the phone, and he looked completely stressed out. He was running his hands through his hair over and over and over and looking down at the ground while he was talking on the phone, shaking his head, pacing back and forth. I knew right then this was not going to be good. I exited my car and I walked past the driver. I quickly looked at him and I said, are you okay? And he said, yes. And I said, stay here. Where is he? And he pointed off into the ditch. As I walked closer to where I thought this person was going to be, I could hear a moaning happening in the ditch, but I couldn't yet see anyone. So as I crested and stood at the top of the highway, now looking down into the ditch, which had about an 8 to 10 foot descent down a 45 degree slope, I knew I was going to have to get down there to help this individual and assess what was going on. As a man lay in the ditch, the grass had actually grown to a point that it was so long that I could barely see him, even standing over top of him. And I called out, I said, are you okay? And I never received any response back. I could hear a faint moaning and possibly even a gurgling by this point, but I wasn't getting any kind of answer for him. I knew I had to slide down there and get into his space to see what had happened. As I tried to climb down into the ditch, at one point I actually started to slide. The grass was so long and wet by this point that I had no traction with my feet whatsoever. So my boots naturally started to slide down. I could feel something against my calves though as I was sliding down the hill. And it was almost like a razor scratching the back of my calf. And I couldn't figure out what it was. I knew that it wasn't a rock because a rock wouldn't scratch or peel back the skin like it was feeling like it was doing. What I was actually rubbing against my leg were little tiny pieces of skull fragment. When I looked down into the ground, I could see what I thought were hundreds of pieces of little tiny white pieces of bone. I was close enough to the male now to be able to see him perfectly as he lay in the grass. The moaning continued. And I believe by that point, he too, on some level, could hear that someone was standing close to him because he actually looked like he was trying to reach out and needed help, but couldn't verbalize, I need help. His hands were just slowly and not working with any kind of real purpose, trying to reach out to grab whatever it was that was around him that was making noise. I did a quick head-to-toe scan, and for some reason I started at the feet. I don't know if that was just a natural instinct to try and stay away from the head because I kind of figured that the 
the bone fragment that had rubbed my leg on the way down into the ditch, if that's where it came from. But as I moved from his feet all the way up his body, everything appeared fine until I got to his head. To be honest with you, I think a lot of the memory of how he looked in that state is obviously blocked because the vision or the memory itself is definitely blocked. But what I do remember is when I looked at him, half of his head was missing above his eyes. There was no skull, no hair. And I think what I saw was half of his brain still inside of his head. The other half, I have no idea where it went. He had sustained such traumatic injuries that there was no way that he was going to survive. But I stood there in complete disbelief and refused to be the reason that would hold him back from survival. I immediately had to do exactly what it was in order to try and increase his chances for survival. My partner was on scene with me, and despite the flood of emotion that overwhelmed me, I knew that now was not the time to say, I need a break. I had to stuff my emotions in this feeling of being overwhelmed by what I was seeing deep down in order to be able to help him. He needed help. And I had to stuff everything that I was experiencing down into a vault and lock it away. My partner and I quickly came up with a game plan of the only way that this male was going to stand a chance of survival was that we were going to call dispatch and get an ambulance sent up to us as fast as possible and to also request an air ambulance as well. My partner who was on scene with me decided to stay with him, the man as he laid in the ditch, grabbing for help. I asked if he needed anything, and he said no, he was okay. He said, go talk to the driver, get his information, get a quick statement. I walked away from that man knowing that he was about to take his last breath at any moment, and that was the end of his life. Being compassionate, I was overwhelmed with sadness as well. As I walked back up the embankment to the road, And I thought to myself, regardless of this person being drunk or not walking home on the highway, nobody needs to lose their life, not like this. But I had to stuff that down as well. I had to talk to the driver to figure out if there was any criminal element to this whatsoever and if charges needed to be laid. I spoke to the driver in such a way to protect the nature of the investigation. I chartered and warned him so that anything that was said or done after that moment of interaction that could be used as evidence in court. The driver was devastated. He didn't try to withhold any information whatsoever. He was completely honest about what had happened. The driver had told me his story in such great detail. I took my notes and I had went back to my partner and said this is what happened. Soon after that, either an ambulance arrived or a helicopter arrived. I'm not sure. I don't remember the rest of it. A lot of it actually was blocked out. But I think it was right around the time that that man had been transported into whatever vehicle or helicopter that was going to take him to the nearest hospital. He was pronounced dead shortly after. Now, while I didn't fear for my own safety in that event, adrenaline had definitely kicked in. My senses had definitely fired up. Someone had died right in front of me, more or less. And I didn't know how to manage the emotions that came from that event either. 
There were too many. I had reports to write up now at the office. Emails to send. People to talk to to update. Calls to get ready for after that. I didn't have the awareness into this event as a young Mountie to recognize that I actually needed to stop for a moment and talk about what I had just experienced and try to help process some of the adrenaline that had just been dumped into my system and the emotions that are swirling within as well. Instead, I layered this whole experience on top of that foundation and told myself I would deal with it later. The problem, though, is that later never came. These are some of the tragic things you see as a police officer or first responder that are completely outside of your control. You are thrust into these events, and despite you feeling or having the tools to navigate some of the complexities of them, the impact that they can have on you is most often misunderstood until much, much later. It took me many, many years to finally be able to talk about this event with some sort of ease and to be able to share it in such a way that the body no longer shakes. And this is where the hard work is for our recovery, for our processing, for our understanding, for our awareness in order to heal from the things that we experience as first responders. We all know what that feeling is when the body shakes and it trembles. When we think or we begin to talk about something that bothers us, that's the gazelle in us trying to get it out, trying to shake it out. And do not steer away from this sensation. Embrace it. And let it happen and talk and keep digging deeper. I assure you, this is all worth it. This is how you do it. For many years, I hid and I ran from this. And that is not the right approach. I am incredibly proud of that night for being able to be there for that man and said a prayer for him briefly. There was nothing we could do. But he deserved the dignity to leave this world in such a way that at least someone near to him cared. Now, many of you are going to be listening to this on a Monday, probably even driving into work, and your eyes are going to be wide open starting the week this way, and I'm not going to leave you here in this space. It is a very heavy story, but trust me, I am okay, and I want you to be okay with it too. This is just, unfortunately, the reality of policing. Now, there is another aspect to policing, which is beyond comical. Years later, when I was in a plainclothes section, so I had stopped wearing my general duty uniform. It had been a number of years before I had put it on. I had to go out to Chilliwack to shoot my pistols and qualify to make sure I was still a good shot. You do this once a year as a Mountie. It's, in essence, a simple qualification test that you have to pass. And if you don't, you go back for some more practice and they get you back up to speed. Now, the pants that were issued are very cheap. They're made up of a very cheap fabric. They're sewn together with cheap thread. And the fact that these pants hold together for as long as they do, which isn't long, is a miracle in itself. 
Regardless, one morning later on as a cop, I had put my uniform on. I think I even had to dust it off because it had been in storage for so long. Put my uniform on and my gun belt and my jacket and everything that I needed to go out and shoot for the day. And I headed out to Chilliwack. Now, when I got to Chilliwack, I was met with about 25 other police officers. You sit down in a class for a bit. You go over a little bit of theory, a little bit of academics. You talk briefly about pistol qualifications and the different stages of shooting just as a quick refresher. And then you get sent off to the range. And while at the range, the range is about 50 yards long, I think, with multiple stalls built into it from where you can shoot from downrange into a barrier. In the same building against a wall is a set of bleachers where students would sit and listen to the instructors speak about different aspects of the qualifications and what you needed to do for the day in order to pass. Now, most of the cops around me were sitting straight up on the bleacher in a position so rigid as most cops are. I, however, on the other side was seated down on one rung, leaning back with my back on the rung that was just above me, which is higher up, almost in like a lazy boy position. I had my feet down on a rung even lower. Both of my feet kicked off to the side in total relaxation mode. My legs were open. I was just kind of hanging out, chilling. And at first I didn't understand. The instructor kept walking past me, looking at me and looking at me in such a way that I was like, does he think I'm, does he think there's something wrong with me? The way he looked at me was almost like disgusting. What are you doing? You should be appalled with yourself. And I was like, there's nothing wrong with my dress and deportment. I had a quick scan. Everything looked in order. I was completely perplexed. So we'd carry on, we'd go shoot, we'd come back to the bleachers, I'd take the same position, everybody else would go back to sitting rigid, and that same instructor would walk up and down as he talked to us, and again look at me and shake his head, and I was like, this is weird, like I don't know what the hell's going on with this guy, but there is something up, and I can't tell what is happening right now. So after shooting... I get out of there because I'm like, I don't know what's up with this guy. I don't know if he's off his medication or what the story is. I drive home thinking, man, oh man, what a day. Like that was so bizarre. Such a strange interaction for that man to keep looking at me the way he did. When I finally got into my bedroom and started to take my kit off, I took my vest off. I took my uniform shirt off. And as I was taking my pants off, I let them drop to the ground. And I looked down and I went, oh no. There was a two and a half foot gaping hole in my crotch where my pants had completely blown apart and he saw everything. It was in that moment, it was in that moment that I knew exactly what that instructor had seen and exactly why he was making the faces he was at me. Now, luckily, I've never had to meet him anywhere else out in public, so hopefully that story dies there. But I know I'm not the only one out there that has the infamous Mounty Pant blowout story. I have heard this happening to so many of us, men and women.
We've covered a lot of ground today, and I want to leave off here. We've covered a fairly tragic story and hopefully a funny story to help shift your mood just a little bit. And I hope, honestly, you took some pointers away from this, maybe a better understanding of maybe some of the things it is that that we go through as first responders. And if you are a first responder, I hope you took something away in your own journey. And hopefully you're young enough in your journey that you can kind of maybe do things a little bit differently. As always, if you are struggling, please reach out. I am not a therapist by any stretch of the means, but I will work to make sure you get connected with someone who can help you. And as we close this episode down, thank you again for your continued support. It means the world to me. Take care of yourselves. Much love.